Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, a wild hike through the history and migration of the folk culture, stories, traditions, and haints hidden in the hills and hollers of Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobick. Hey folks, welcome to this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. As y'all know, storytelling is something that's very near and dear to my heart, something that's very, very important to me. And recently I was able to interview one of my favorite storytellers, Owen Staten. Owen is from Wales. He's a traditional storyteller. He is the host of the Time Between Times Storytelling Podcast and YouTube channel, as well as the co-host of Spectre of the Sea Podcast with Beth and Briggs Miller. Owen and I recently had a very wonderful chat, got to know each other a little better. We've been friends on uh, digital friends on Twitter and through Discord and, and WhatsApp and all that kind of stuff. This was the first time that we actually got to sit down and talk to one another face to digital face, as it were. He is such a wonderful and humble artist. I can think of no other word for it. He really is an artist in his storytelling, his way that he weaves words in such a fashion that you can actually see yourself in the places he's describing. I don't want to delay this any further because it is such a wonderful interview and I had such a wonderful time and I want y'all to enjoy it as well. So here is my interview with Owen Staten. Welcome to the show, Owen Staten. Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. Storyteller, Welshman, director, actor, former policeman, Owen Staten. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, Aaron. Thank you ever so much for having me here. And uh, thanks. It's great. It's great to be here with you. We've been floating around in the same circles. We kind of came together because of our uh, cerulean-haired sweetheart, Beth and Briggs Miller. Listeners to my show will know her as the Appalachian Folklore Podcast Welsh correspondent. Um, She's popped in every now and again to help me with words. So that's how Owen and I met, for those of you who aren't familiar with his work. If you want to talk about, yeah, what you do, your podcast, your YouTube, and all that stuff to give people an idea. Yeah, thanks, Aaron. I will uh, point out that Bethan does live in England, mind, but there we are. But well, that's okay. Sure. <laughs> but she is Welsh. No, she's, a... she's very proudly yeah. Yes, Welsh. she is. Uh, no, she's full Welsh. Is she full Welsh? She only think, talks um... about her dad being from wales so i didn't hear I think, about i think a mum is english yeah um i but she was born and bred in uh in Puthcall, which is not far from here um so uh which is lovely but she has chosen to move away Aaron. She sure moved away you know <laughs> but we'd love for her to come back my name is owen staten um bethan's a friend of mine we do the specter of the sea podcast and uh which is a story uh or a podcast all about the Welsh myths of the uh, of the coast and the ghosts and the spirits of the coast. I'm a storyteller. I've been storytelling probably for about 35 years, I would imagine, something like that. Um, and I've always loved Welsh, Welsh mythology, Welsh stories, Welsh ghost stories, um, the Tulwith Tig, all those sort of Welsh tales. Um, many, well, back many prior to the pandemic i was a storyteller who would perform a lot uh in the room i would go i've traveled the world i've been lucky to do it i've been to the edinburgh festival the edinburgh fringe festival a couple of times i've done storytelling shows there i've been lucky enough to visit the states on a number of occasions and performed there um but when the pandemic happened of course we couldn't do that anymore so i started up my own youtube channel called time between times um the reason why it's called that is the 
time between uh, when it's night, night, not day, and the sun has gone and the sky is grey. It's that time where the magic happens, where the veil between our world and the fairy world is really thin. So um, the, the people, the characters, the creatures from stories come into our world. So I started doing that to test myself, essentially, so I would be um, telling more stories. And I made a pledge to myself that I would do a story a week on there. And there are now over 100 on the YouTube channel, which is which is great. But it was just me in the chair, one take stuff, doing it as if it was live. And, uh, and it worked really well. But then about a year into that, I discovered that I was... Um, I was able to do a podcast. I, I didn't think I was technically able, being a Luddite of sorts. And um, I found that I could. So I started doing the Time Between Times podcast because I felt that podcasting was a better way of doing it because people tend to listen to these things when they're driving, when they're out and about, when they're walking their dogs, that type of thing. And yeah, it found a really nice audience. And Time Between Times has been going now for almost two years and um, new stories every week. But it's all done in. Um, I'm a great believer in in um, in looking after your mental health, really. So it was all done in a mindful way, so that you could. I, I try to encourage the audience members to lose themselves in the story. So ideally, I, I envision my audience to be sitting there with their eyes closed, not when they're driving, obviously, but um, sitting there with their eyes closed and relaxed and just losing, you know, not looking at their phone, not looking at anything just listening to the story because i think there's a lot that we can all benefit from that so that um was what i started doing and as long as well as my stories i sometimes put out these mindful listens which are where i just describe a situation or a place or a time and i let the people lose themselves in that and i also interview other people like yourself um you know people who i know well and uh, people from different areas and ask them to tell me their favorite stories as well and i sort of tell them so it's been very yeah i'm really pleased with it aaron and um uh yeah it's going really well every time the time between times comes out i always i always take you to bed with me <laughs> because of that well, mindful okay. listen um, yeah, but it is, it is that you get the way that you describe the setup before you tell mm. the the story of, you know, you're sitting in your comfortable chair, you, we might be in front of a fireplace, you're really putting people painting a wonderful word picture, and it calms my brain, which is obviously very active most of the time. And it, I use it, your podcast to calm my brain just before I go to sleep and get into that, that, that mindful listen and pull me into the heart of the forest. I can picture walking down the path. I know about the the walls and the, the church and the fire pit. And it really is, it's very meditative. And then you get into the story and you tell these wonderful stories in such a way that I'm there. And it has got to the point where those images do pop up in dreams. I wake up in the morning and I was like, there was a hooded figure at a fire pit. I don't remember anything else, but there it was. So that's what I've really enjoyed about Time Between Times. And I was actually, I came to you from Spectre of the Sea, from Bethan was very excited about the first episode of Spectre of the Sea, and you said the phrase time between times. And I thought that was very clever. Oh, that's a great phrase. I love it. I'm going to have to work that in. And she's like, no, he's got a podcast called Time Between Times Storytelling. The Twitter spaces, if you want to talk about that as well, those have become like, I have to be there. I set things aside to make sure that I am focused for the the spaces event uh, but for those of 
the folks who don't know, you want to talk about your spaces event? Yeah, um, that's, to be honest, that was a big, big thing for me. I, I was just looking at Twitter one day and I, I saw this spaces thing and I'd never seen it. I'd never heard it. And I, I popped into someone was having a rant about something or other on there. And I thought, oh, okay, maybe we could use this. And um, I decided to just see if I could do some live storytelling using Twitter spaces. So one week I pledged to do one every night for five nights. And I can remember on the first night, um, there was like three people came, um, but one of them was Bethan. And then um, on the second night, there were maybe five. And then maybe on the third night, there were none. But I decided to record them anyway and keep them going. But from that, because of Bethan's kindness and um, a few other people, a lot of people from the uncanny community sort of joined on. And then I thought about it. And today is a Sunday. And Sundays can be really difficult days for a lot of people um, because you've got the week sort of stretching out in front of you. And I know that for myself, I always find Sundays to be a bittersweet experience. I've been out this morning. I've had a lovely time. And um, But as the day draws on, you always got that looming sort of Monday feeling. So I just thought, I wonder if I did one on a, a Sunday evening, would I get many people come? But I could also use that to, again, as you said, try and invoke that meditative experience where people just forget about what's happening tomorrow and just think about what's happening today and right now and lose themselves in that story. So at 9 p.m. British time on a um, on a Sunday, I do these stories and they've the audience has gathered, you know, week after week after week. And um, I'm really, really pleased with how they've gone. I'm pleased with the people who I meet there. I'm pleased that people come back week after week. And all it is, is I probably spend about 15 minutes telling a story, um, which is usually the story I released that week um, on the Time Between Times podcast. But it um, it's something that people seem to have grasped onto. And a lot of people find it really sort of calming and, and a, a nice experience to come and to come and join us at the fire pit. So yeah, it's it's something that's really worked. So if you do follow me on Twitter, um, it's Owen S. Griffiths on Twitter. Um, I can, obviously I, I send a link out every day. I've done it today. And at 9 p.m. on that night, we will gather at the fire pit and listen to a story live, which is nice. So for anybody interested, everything you need to know about Owen will be in the show notes. And I, I highly recommend you click every single one of those links. Um, that's really kind, Aaron. Of course. So storytelling in and of itself is is a huge part of uh, my life. Not that I am a storyteller uh, here in the South and other parts of the region. We have liars competitions or big fish stories. And that's more of the kind of storyteller I am. I love to uh, embellish things for dramatic effect and just to get a rise out of people or, you know, pull their leg. But I get a lot of that from my maternal grandfather. He was a joker. He loved playing pranks and he loved embellishing stories. And I wanted to ask you where your experience, your passion, your love for storytelling in the theater came to be because you were a career police officer and don't often hear a lot of you know, thespian police officers. Uh, I know a lot of actors and I know a lot of folks who work in police, fire, EMTs and things like that, but I've never seen the two cross. So I thought you might want to give a little how, how you got into storytelling and acting 
Absolutely. I'm from um, a small village called Carmarthen, which is in the Welsh Valley, and it's about two miles away from where Richard Burton, famous actor Richard Burton, was born. Uh, one of my the earliest things that happened to me was at the bottom of my parents' street, Richard Burton's brother lived. And um, one day my father was walking me in a pushchair down that street and there was a Rolls Royce car parked outside. And my father said, look at this car. And he asked the driver, there was a driver with a hat to the works, if um, the baby, uh, which was me, could sit in the back of the car. So the driver said, yeah, no problem. So I sat in the back of the car. And to my father's horror and the, the driver's horror, the door of the house opened and out came Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton. And um, Elizabeth Taylor held me in her arms and Mr. Burton spoke to my dad and all this sort of thing. And uh, my dad, who sort of knew him uh, barely, but did know him, um, always spoke about this moment. But what I'm getting at in a roundabout sort of way is the Avon Valley, which is where I'm from, has a rich, rich heritage of acting and performing. Um, Richard Burton is very, very famous. Um, Anthony Hopkins, you know, from The Silence of the Lambs, etc., is from there. Michael Sheen, who is out um, at the moment, does Good Omens, things like that, is a Port Albert boy as well, um, as well as other luminaries. Um, Ivor Emanuel, who played a really good part in Zulu, famous film Zulu, all come from that area. But my family have no background in this at all. Right. So um, I but always had a, an interest in theatre, loved theatre, always interested. And nobody knew where it came from. My parents, very working class Welsh family. But as I grew up, I, I began to love theatre more and more. But I never really had any support to go into that sort of way or, or in, into that sort of realm. But I did start um, acting in a few shows. Um, I did quite a bit in a, a Welsh soap opera called Publicum. I did a lot of theatre stuff when I was growing up. Um, and then I started getting bookings in a museum in Swansea to talk about life as a Roman soldier. Uh, there's a big history in, in, in Wales. The Romans came to Wales many, many, you know, obviously 2,000 years ago and settled and fought against the Celtic tribes quite a lot and this type of thing. So they booked me either as a Celtic warrior or as a Roman soldier. And I got really good legs, Aaron, right? So I was usually a Roman soldier. But to my horror, I can remember turning up one day um, and I'd, I'd arranged a session that lasted about 25 minutes. And that would talk about the weapons, the armour the Romans used, to the type of houses they, 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 um, they lived in, to the sort of tools they used and that type of thing. And I can remember turning up one day and the guy who was organising it said, yep, we've got people coming all day today. I put them into hour-long sessions. Is that okay? And I remember thinking, oh, an hour? What am I going to do? So um, to try and fill that hour, I literally, off the top of my head, if I was a Celt, I would tell an old Celtic story because I loved folklore and I loved the folklore from my area, or if I was a Roman, I would tell something from Roman or Greek mythology just to fill that time. It would be like Theseus and the Minotaur or something like that. And and that sort of worked because I think growing up, um, a misspent youth um, playing Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing games and Warhammer and all those type of things taught me how to tell a story as a dungeon master um, and be descriptive about things. 
And I also found out because my parents were really confused and saying, yeah, you, you do a lot of public speaking and you do a lot. You can do this storytelling. We don't know where it came from, but they looked into my family history. And at the turn of the 20th century, there was a great Methodist revival in Wales, um, the Methodist religion, Methodist Christian religion, chapel uh, religion became was really big and had this huge revival. And my great, great uncle um, was really at the cusp of that. It was a guy called Johan Griffiths, who um, was this really great lay preacher. And none of us knew this, but we sort of found this out. So I, I, I can only imagine and only think that that's where perhaps my a little bit of my storytelling skill came from in that this guy would stand in front of hundreds of people in, in a makeshift area and preach and um that is the only sort of link to any sort of theater i've got so to cut a long story and this is becoming a long story i i found that i could do the storytelling and it was something that nobody else was doing so um, I put together a few ghost story shows on Halloween. I would do some stories. As I said, I went to Edinburgh um, and I wrote some stories and, and, and did that. I was lucky enough to go to Texas, tell some stories there. And I was getting a lot of bookings alongside working in the police. And as you said, it's not the sort of thing that links up a lot, but a lot of my stories and a lot of the characters that I portray are based on people I've come across in my time in the police. And during the police, I was lucky. I, I spent 20 years in the police service and I was lucky enough to be stationed in a place called Astragunlais. It's hard to say, I know, but it's in the Swansea Valley and um, the myths, the legends, the ghost stories that have happened in Astragunlais are incredible. And I managed to um, pick a lot of this up because I used to meet a lot of people in the community and I would perform basically Swansea Valley stories um, in, in Astragunlice. And um, I've got a really good story, actually. In uh, I used to book, there's a small village called Colbrun in the um, uh, Swansea Valley and there was a village hall and I used to book it every three months to do a storytelling show. And then I was driving past my police car once and this guy came out and he, he flagged me down. He says, Owen, Owen, um, uh, you're doing a show tomorrow night. I said, yes, I got to ask you a favour. Okay, um, there's a film crew filming in the village and they've asked if they can store their equipment in the village hall. But you've booked it tomorrow night, so I've told them no unless you say yes. Um, do you mind if they store their equipment? It'll be in the back. It won't get in the way in any way. And I went, yeah, that's no problem at all. I said, um, who are they? And he went, hang on a minute. I'll have a look now. And he pulled this bit of paper out of his pocket and he went, um, Batman. Right? <laughs> and I can remember thinking, what? And it was the last scene in The Dark Knight Rises, if you know the Christopher Nolan film, where um, the guy, um, I forget his name, who's playing Robin, goes to the Batcave and there's the waterfall. And that is in the village of Colbrin in the Swansea Valley. And they were filming that scene the next day. And um, so that was my link to that, really. But um, yeah, so that's how... I've sort of uh, got into the storytelling thing and um, it's just gone bigger and bigger and I'm really happy with it. And it, it, you know, some people seem to like it. So it's great. Yeah. There's, there's quite a few of us that do. No, I didn't think about the connection with the, the being the public servant and hearing the stories because mm. I think um, small town area, you talk to people, you're there to protect and serve. And then 
just talking, just chatting and getting to know the folks that you're working for and with. You hear good stories all the time. I do it when I go to the grocery store and I just start talking to people about plants. And then all of a sudden you start hearing good stories about their families and it all connects. So yeah, yeah that makes sense now. Um, but so my next question is the involvement, uh, the, the migration of Welsh stories to Appalachia and the Welsh heritage that is here. Because a lot of people don't think about it. It's usually Scottish, Irish, English, German, and Swiss. But mm -hmm. my family came from Greece, supposedly, uh, the Copuses. And there's very large pockets of Welsh stories. The most common one I hear of is the Moon-Eyed people. And I don't know if you're familiar with that story, if that's come across in your storytelling or anything that you've ever heard or read. I know of it. It's not a story I've told. Um, I've got that book here and I haven't actually read it yet. But um, yeah, I, I, I can talk about this for quite a while. Um, as I've told you, I, I've got a lot of friends in the, in the States, Aaron, and I love um, the fact that Folklore from Europe has a base in in American folklore as well, and vice versa. There's some American stories that make their way over towards the UK and beyond as well. Wales has a huge footprint in American history, and it's something. It's, it's not something I'm going to get into too much now because I know some people will have strong feelings. But what you find with the Welsh in general is that we are naturally quite a shy people. So there's a word which we use in Spectre of the Sea quite a lot um, as a Welsh speaker. It's a word called Heeraith, and the boat in Spectre of the Sea is called the Heeraith. Um, Heeraith doesn't really translate, but if I can try my best with it, it means uh, a longing for Wales, a, um, a longing for, uh, for home, a longing for Welsh culture, for, for Welsh being, and that type of thing. Wales, well, the Welsh are particularly bad travellers. They're renowned for it because they've always got the Heeraith. They always want to come home. So they've got that issue. Our storytelling, our folklore, our legends, our myths, our traditions are every bit as strong as those of the Scottish people and the Irish people. But they've got far better publicists than we have, right? So what you find is a lot of American people in particular um, you know, are, are really proud of their Irish heritage, really proud of their Scottish heritage. Um, a lot of those names still carry on, but the Welsh are like a quiet undercurrent of um of sort of things that go on. We're there, but perhaps not as prominent as um as we could have been. But there were a lot of Welsh people in um in uh, the early years of the of America. A lot of people from Wales emigrated over there. A lot um, back in the mid-19th century, Merthyr Tydville, which is literally 20 miles up the road from me, was the iron capital of the world. And if you go to the American railroads, which powered all the way through the West over from to, to put the course together, and you actually look at some of the, the rail there, they're all made in Merthyr. Um, so there all is a huge Welsh link to the way that um, America so pro progressed. A lot of the founding fathers, you look at, um, uh, I've got Welsh heritage in them. Um, and there are so many uh, legends that have made their way across. The Tulwith Teg, which you mentioned there, is something which is sometimes mentioned in, in America. Um, a lot of Welsh names, uh, uh, people name their children, um, sort, of, sort of Welsh names, without even realising it. But it's there, and, it, and it's underneath, and it's, a, it's an undercurrent. It's not as prominent as, as Ireland or um, 
you know, St. Patrick's Day is a huge thing in, in America, as I know. But um, St. David's Day, March the 1st, um, there's still pockets of people. If you look at every American uh, city, there will always be sort of Welsh immigrants, Welsh expats, uh, or people with Welsh heritage who are there still sort of supporting it. So that we are there. And the fact that our heritage has, has, has made it that far and is still talked about is something I'm actually really proud of. And um, it's great that we've got these links to Appalachia and these places as well. It's really good. Usually a, a marker for me is the food. Are there any, like, you can tell, I was talking to, uh, I was interviewed by Rachel at Folklore Food and Fairy Tales, and we were talking about the food ways of certain cultures and how things from over where she's from in the Black country came over here into parts of the United States and um, very unique customs that are just in these little areas. Are there any traditional Welsh foods that you know of that have made its way over here or things that you could talk about and maybe it'll spark something in my brain? They intermix very much because when you look at the Celtic peoples in the UK, the Irish, the, the Scots, the uh, the Welsh, our food is very similar. We have um, everyone goes on about when I whenever I'm in the states, they go on about Irish stew, which is exactly the same as Welsh cowl, which is a uh, you know sort of a meat potatoes couple of veg uh, sort of stew, you know, that that come around. In Wales, we don't really have a massive amount of um, of food, which I would think is iconic in other parts of the world. Very much like a lot of British. I don't think the British food is is an amazing, apart from fish and chips and things like that, is is an amazing sort of thing that um, that travels that well. I mean, um, we've got, um, like I say, Welsh cowl. Uh, there are other couple of small bits and bobs. We uh, have something called lava bread, which is a um, uh, a dish made from seaweed, which is um, really, really sort of local. And um, a lot of people in Wales eat it, but not much else. But a lot of it is very similar to Scottish and Irish, who obviously they they, they spend a lot more money claiming it than we do. Yeah, I, I know uh, we were talking about, Rachel and I were talking about fried chicken is is huge in the South mm. and in Southern Appalachia as well. And they, they take the idea of, you know, Scotland fries, everything very... They don't like it, but it it is there. But that tradition of the the style of how it is fried came over here, and then the African, unfortunately, enslaved individuals made it better and uniquely their own. And it is mm-hmm. of the African American culture, but it was mm-hmm. taken back. came came with the Scots, but made better by the African American culture to the point where it's now a Southern tradition. And things like the Irish stew or Guinness, Guinness stew or uh, beef and Guinness stew. Sorry. Uh, I opened and ran a Irish pub up in uh, Blacksburg, Virginia about 10, 13 years ago. And I was responsible for developing the menu. So it was all these traditional Irish dishes. And I did a little bit of research for it. That's kind of the style I like to cook. What I find interesting is I'm going to have to find that recipe about the seaweed. Uh, what was it called again? Lava bread. Yeah. Lava bread. Lava bread. And see if there's a, a translation uh, has it migrated over here is part of what I really like is to see how recipes change. Cause you can't get seaweed in the mountains. They kind of, yeah, they don't really course. go hand to hand. No, and, no. Uh, but we do have other indigenous plants in the area that could potentially be substituted, essentially take the same recipe, take out the seaweed, but put this plant in and see how mm. it evolves. And this is how they do it traditionally in this area. And then it becomes southern or appalachian northern southern whatever so yeah i was just curious to see if if any food as a marker of could spark any memory and and see if i knew you know 
the pockets I, of I don't think Welsh La- folks. I don't think I don't think lava bread would have migrated. It hasn't even migrated as far as my house. It's horrible. <laughs> I don't know. There are some. There are some very unique places, uh, uh, restaurants mm. up in the Boone and Asheville area, because it's you know part of the problem with Appalachia is people have a lot of money, lots and lots of money, and they build houses and but they don't contribute to the community. And that's a big problem uh, for it, it's a tourist culture or it's someone's, you know, they're a married couple who have been pediatric neurosurgeons for 40 years and they each make half a million dollars. So they have this giant home in the mountains that they go to, but they don't contribute to the community. Yeah. And there's these yeah. restaurants that are popping up that do take the locality very seriously. Everything is grown within five miles or 10 miles of that restaurant. Mm. And when I go there, I see things on menus every now and again, and I'll, you know, be surfing through my phone to find a place. And it's words that sound like they, that they are from a different country, whether it's Ireland, Scotland, or Wales. And so I, I need to be paying better attention now to see if that beautiful Welsh language pops up in these menus. Because a lot of people are doing that. It's the people who have the money, ungodly amounts of money, but have decided to invest back in the communities by putting a restaurant there that highlights that community's people. I, th- I think it's funny you should mention this because when we talk about Welsh culture, I think we are going through a little boom period all of a sudden where Wales is becoming more popular around the world. But again, it's nothing to do with the Welsh actually promoting it. it a lot of it's to do with other people who have sort of come to the area. I don't know if you've, you've heard about this, but... Um, the American actor Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney have bought a Welsh football team, uh, Wrexham uh, soccer team, as you know, a Welsh football yeah, team. Yeah, I did. And I did. they've taken they've taken it out of the national league, which is the lower leagues of uh, of the British football system, and brought it back into the main sort of league through um, basically blood, sweat, tears, and a lot of money. But it's been uh, done with the backing of a um, a Disney Plus documentary. And yep. unbelievably and quite brilliantly, uh, this documentary publicizes the Welsh culture just as much. It puts the language out there. It translates. Um, they speak to a lot of Welsh people, you know, because in Wrexham, the Welsh language is predominantly a first language. So they've got a lot of Welsh speakers up there. So almost by accident, um, all of a sudden in America in particular, a lot of people are now suddenly becoming interested in Wales, which is um, which can only be a good thing. I know that uh, Dr. Delith Bader and uh, Mark Norman are doing uh, a book on Welsh folklore. And then on the Lorman podcast, Jenny Collier, and she's the Welsh correspondent, and they do the Valentine's Day episodes with her, and she's doing the Mabinogion. She takes uh, elements of Mabinogion, and of course, they make their, their jokes about it. But she is learning, she is Welsh and is learning Welsh, and has no idea, she's just, she's very fluent in it. But even some of the things surprise her, and to just hear them talk, there's a lot of those those words come come over here too for a lot of things that we use, and that just that that migration of language too is is beautiful, where it's yeah. Welsh, but you didn't know it's Welsh, and I guess yeah. maybe yeah, you do need a, a better PR team over I there besides so, yeah. Ryan yeah. Reynolds and yeah, I know it it takes um. Uh, you know, a Canadian actor and a, an American to actually promote us. It's, it's yeah, an American crazy, Irish uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but again, it's it's all to do with this sort of um, Welsh culture. Welsh culture is very almost like working class. 
and we almost seem to um, disapprove. We're a bit like the hobbits. We disapprove of people who put their head above the parapet. You know, we disapprove about people who are um, wanting to better themselves sometimes. And we can be a little bit uh, self-depreciating in the way that we go about things. Um, Welsh is very, it's it's part of, a, um, Welsh people are famously melancholic. Um, and I think that's true. You know, we, we famously are a little bit grumpy and a little bit dis silently disapproving about people who are um, putting themselves, you know, out there, which is a shame. Uh, I, but, I get uh, the grumpy part. I'm I'm very much a curmudgeon. I like my rocking chair on the front porch and, you know, yeah. peek out my windows because, it, again, it's a small town that I live in. And it's whose car is that driving down? They're not supposed yeah, to be here. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. So. We were talking about this, you know, a little peek behind the curtain here in podcast land. Owen and I were talking for about 40 minutes before we hit record. One of the things that came up, I'm going to derail this conversation big time, was Bigfoot. Um, Ooh, yeah. It is, uh, if if you guys follow me on Bigfoot or on Twitter, you'll see a lot of Bigfoot stuff. Those of you who know Owen, he gets into it with uh, Bloody Hell Ken from Uncanny. And for those of you who don't know what Uncanny is, it's a podcast by Danny Robbins that looks at true stories of the supernatural, the paranormal, the unexplained. And he interviews, it's first-person interviews. And then he has a, a skeptic and a believer, and they kind of hash out the facts of the case. He has a couple other podcasts. Jeez, uh, Battersea Poltergeist. He did Witch Farm. Um, he's got quite a few things. But Ken, who we only know as Bloody Hell Ken, was the first episode of the first season of Uncanny. And Ken is a very prominent geneticist uh, who went to school in Belfast. And Owen loves Bigfoot. And Ken loves science. And they just happened to get into a Bigfoot conversation about the Patterson-Gimlin film on Twitter. Now, Bigfoot means something very special to me. Uh, Bigfoot is a symbol of, honestly, that curmudgeonly, like, I just want to be in the wild and I want to be left alone. I love to go fishing. I love camping, hiking. I love going miles out into the middle of nowhere and building a fire pit and boiling water and minding my own business and listening to the birds and the other, you know, flora and fauna. So I wanted to ask you, since Bigfoot isn't a traditionally UK cryptid, I, I only know about the wild man of Essex, I think is the only thing that came up that I know of. Why Bigfoot? Where did Bigfoot come from? And uh, do you want to come hunt Bigfoot over here? I would love to come and hunt Bigfoot up over there. And um, again, in Welsh folklore, there's a um, a character called a Brynin Lloyd, the, the Grey King, which is a, um, a Bigfoot-esque character that sits in the forest. Um, I've told the story on um, on Time Between Times. If you go back, I think it's on the the video, the Brynin Lloyd. Have a look at that, the stories there. But for me, Aaron, it's a bit of a funny relationship with Bigfoot. I can remember as a small child, going to the cinema with a friend and his family. And they used to show a lot of these double bill sort of um, uh, features, you know, uh, in the early sort of mid-70s, this would be uh, things like um, Saturn V and Hawk the Slayer and these type of films in double bills. And we went to see one double bill and I can't, well, I didn't get to the second one. The first film was called Sasquatch. Now, I have not been able to find much about this film anywhere, but I was a very small child, and I can remember the opening sequence that showed some snow-covered hills, some deep North American forest, and then a pair of bright red eyes and some trees crashing down towards the camera. 
and the thud of something walking in the woodland. And it terrified me. And I literally found myself in the um, in the foyer of the cinema, refusing to go back into the film. And my friend's mother was standing with me and she had to phone my mum to pick me up. And I, my father ribbed me for ages about the fact that I'd left this film and I was terrified. And not long after that, I can remember one night, um, you know, all those years ago, watching The Legend of Boggy Creek. And uh, that was on television. And that terrified me as well. And I think it, I think it's in that film where there's a scene where there's a... Um, uh, a courting couple sort of parked in a car park in the middle of nowhere, making out in the, the front seat of the car. And Bigfoot comes along, or the the um, the Boggy Creek monster, the, the folk monster, is it a folk monster? He comes and he puts his face on the glass of the window of the car that the couple are sitting there. And that was my nightmare image growing up, to have this creature pressing his face against the glass when you were in the car. So Bigfoot, to me, terrified me. There was a series in the UK in the 70s called Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. And it was um, every week they would, a bit like Uncanny, they, every week they would feature a different supernatural thing or a, a, you know, a cryptid thing or whatever. And one week they, um, they featured Bigfoot and they showed the Patterson-Gimlin film. And I was fascinated with this. I, I was amazed by it. And I had a book, an Arthur C. Clarke's book, and it had a still from the Patterson-Gimlin film in it as well. So Bigfoot for me growing up was very, very much a bogeyman. You know, it was um, it was something I was terrified of. And the thought of going into a forest and hunting for Bigfoot, I couldn't think of anything worse. You know what I mean? It was something that would terrify me. I always thought of stories about Bigfoot. And if there was anything going to be frightening in my house, it wasn't going to be a ghost. It wasn't going to be a vampire. It was going to be Bigfoot. And my parents, when I grew up, lived in a bungalow, a one-story house. And... Um, I backed onto a lot of woodland and every night I'd walk into my room and if it was dark and it was just darkness outside, I would always be terrified of that face pressed against the glass looking in. So Bigfoot for me was a fascination. It was a fear and it was um, something I was really, really frightened about. When the Finding Bigfoot film um, documentary programme came out probably about 10 years ago now or, or a little bit more, I was in the police and... I can remember um, I had another colleague in the police who was also fascinated by Bigfoot and we would work together quite a lot. And a lot of the area we covered was woodland and it was a sort of dense sort of, and we'd find ourselves in these wooded roads and this type of thing. And we'd talk about Bigfoot and we'd both get terrified, you know, and we'd sort of like sort of quickly move on. Cause again, the face against the glass. So um, I started watching finding Bigfoot and I found that that, demystified Bigfoot for me and I no longer became frightened of it even though some of the stories were terrifying and but you'd see the the people who were on the show were in the woods with their not you know night cameras on looking for Bigfoot and I didn't I I thought I'd be terrified by, by but I wasn't and all of a sudden it became more of a fascination and the idea of looking for Bigfoot became really appealing to me as, as I've grown older and it's funny how shows show things in a different light that can change your opinion and um yeah i would love there's nothing more that i would love to go out there and actually look for bigfoot i'd still be terrified of you hear these stories where you know you're laying in a tent and you hear the footsteps like bam bum bum outside but the thought that that creature might be out there and i i i sit somewhere in between skeptic and believer i i 
sometimes I think it must be there. Other times I think it can't be there. But the thought of it being there just offers that little bit of magic, that beyond mm. the veil, that thing from beyond the time between times, that something is there. And yeah, I argue with Ken about it, but Ken, you know, he's someone who knows far more than me about, you know, this sort of subject. But at the end of the day, he's all about the evidence. And he says, there's no DNA, so there's no evidence. But for me, there are thousands of sightings and there are loads of footprints and there are hundreds of stories and they are, can't all be lying, can they? There must be something. But there we are. So that's that was big, big takeaways. When you have, it's the stories that get me. Mm. I don't care if it's real or not. It's that magic, like you said, the, 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 mm. the idea that it could be. And there's so much wilderness in the United States. It's just mind-boggling, even for someone who spent 40 years here and most of that mm. time in the woods. I mean, I'm more terrified of cats, big cats and bears, honestly. Because those are there, and there's a lot of evidence for those. Mm. Um, I've been camping in a tent by myself and had a very large animal bang against it, but I knew it wasn't Bigfoot, though I wanted it to be. But yeah, that that idea that if it's going, if any of those creatures is going to exist, it has to be, because we've got the most stories worldwide from different cultures of the wild man, of the creature that looks similar to a human that lives out there. And of course, folklorically, there's the idea that, uh, and historically, the idea that that's symbolic of the way things used to be, and now we are civilized, so we don't believe in that. That's the old ways, and here we are now. I'm going to be doing some episodes on fairy lore and fairy-like creatures here coming up. I'm going to do a suite of those. And the idea that fairy lore didn't make it over here because... This was a civilized country by civilized people. The Puritans were very civilized folk. And that was an old world custom that we're leaving behind. But then when you get here, there's indigenous tribes who have little people stories. And they have wild man, big, hairy, wild man stories. And you can try to civilize it as much as you want, but the stories are going to stay there. And now that we've moved into all this technology and there's everybody out there with their meters and their dials and their knobs and levers and whatever flashing equipment, hunting ghosts and hunting Bigfoot, Bigfoot, uh, finding Bigfoot did the same thing for me. It was more humorous for me because, you know, it was just the paranormal shows just like hunting ghosts. But the difference is you're actually putting yourself in a very dangerous area because you're in the wilderness and mm. anything can happen. Having watched and loving every episode of Alone and Survivor Man, if you get poked with the wrong plant and you don't know what it is, or you step on a snake, your Bigfoot hunt turns into you having to crawl 10 miles back to your car, um, which is a very real fear. But that idea of you're taken out of civilized society, civilization, and put into the wilderness adds to the fear so that every noise you hear that's a bigfoot and that's what i love most about it when i go out into the woods i try to identify the animals but i can't help but build myself up like i don't know what that is is it is it a bigfoot is this going to be the moment mm -hmm. and no it's not but mm -hmm. there is that magic that i just i love and mm -hmm. to hear you say that yeah that the the magic of the could be and if anyone's, if anything is going to exist, it's got to be that. 
thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Owen's going to tell a story traditionally told uh, here that you guys will be able to pick up on the 15th of the month for the Stories from the Cabin episode. So for now, Owen, thank you so much for everything that you've, uh, you've presented today. It was wonderful talking to you. And I'm looking forward to the story. So thank you very much, Owen. No problem. Thank you very much for having me, Aaron. And thank you to everyone and all your listeners. You you represent a fantastic part of the world there, somewhere I'd love to visit, and um, somewhere with a great heritage and folklore and tales as well. So um, one of my favourite uh, stories from the Appalachian area is the uh, the Taylor Pool, which I've told for you um, on uh, on my uh, my channel in the past. But I'm going to give you a traditional sort of Welsh story, a story that uh, embodies everything, what I think about storytelling and the way that I do it and the way that um, I try and present it. And that's where I'm going to leave it. Sorry, not sorry for the cliffhanger. Owen immediately went into telling his story, one of my favorite stories. And it was such a pleasure to be the private audience of one, to hear such a wonderful tale from such a wonderful storyteller. You do not want to miss this. I also highly recommend you check out his YouTube channel, both of his podcasts, Time Between Times Storytelling and Spectre of the Sea, as well as joining his Twitter Spaces events on Sunday evenings for the U.S. and nights for the U.K. All of the links to everything he does will be in the show notes. You should definitely follow him on Twitter so that you can get on to those Twitter Spaces He's got one starting here in about an hour, so I need to finish up this recording so I don't miss that. I want to thank y'all, as always, for stopping by and listening to my little show. I really hope you enjoyed this interview with Owen, and I hope you fall in love with his storytelling as much as I have. And, of course, a special thank you to Owen. Owen, thank you so much for coming by and having that conversation. Thank you so much for the story. I really hope y'all will come by on the 15th for Stories from the Cabin, where you'll get to hear Owen's wonderful, wonderful tale. And until then, y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to rate and review this show on whatever platform you use, I'd be much obliged as it helps spread the word. You can email me at appfolklorepod at gmail.com and visit my website, shows.acast.com AFP. You can find me at AppFolklorePod on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find me on Mastodon at AppFolklorePod at thefolklore.cafe. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the AFP cover art. You can find his work on Instagram at Inkwell Graphic Design. Thanks again for listening.